Well, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the resurrection of the body. As we move to another section of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about using our body to glorify God. That's explicitly what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. It says to use your body to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Just, just listen to this passage for a second. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So for the next, uh, next few weeks, we'll be looking at these chapters, chapters 5 through 7, that, that all deal with this issue about how we use our physical body in such a way that we are able to glorify God in the way that we conduct ourselves. If we think about this idea of glorifying God, it means in part to honor Him and to worship Him. When you hear the word worship, you may immediately think of a gathering and a worship service, or you may think about, about music. But those are just some of the ways that we can worship God. How you conduct yourself in your body is also meant to be an act of of worship. So God receives glory when we deny ourselves sinful pleasures and submit his rule even in the use of our physical body. Well, if you've read 1 Corinthians, then you'll know that the next three chapters uh, deals a lot with sexual immorality and boundaries regarding uh, activity and marriage and all these kind of things. And so anytime I do a sermon or a series, I always get emails and messages from parents that say, D do I need to take my kids home or is this, you know, this going to be a appropriate? And so, so I want to encourage you over the next few months, everything that, that happens here, as far as I know, is going to be family friendly. So if you're, we don't have nursing, those things going on. So I know in the second service we've got a lot of small children. And I'm not going to say anything detailed. Uh, we're just going to use the words in the Bible. And so they're probably not going to know what we're talking about. And, and so if they ask you what a word means when you get home, I'll just leave it up to you to define it however you want to. And if they're old enough to figure it out, well, they really need to hear what, what we're about to say from God's, from God's word. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to look at the first two verses today as we kind of think about these, these major overarching issues that Paul is about to deal with. So I want to ask you, would you join me in standing as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you give us understanding. Lord, the things that we read in your word, I know they're in direct contradiction to this world. So help us, Lord to have more faith in your word than we do the trends and movements of our day. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, the Bible says here that it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So I think it's important, first of all, to note that there is such a thing as, as sexual immorality. And it's a little crazy to think about that that even needs to be a point that we need to talk about. But that's where we are today. There's a lot of people that are going to be very offended at just the idea of suggesting that there is such a thing as, as sexual immorality. And Missy wandered into my office this week, and, and uh, she was asking me what I was doing, and I was telling her about the sermon, and I said, and I said the first third of the sermon is trying to establish that there's such a thing as sexual immorality. I said, isn't that crazy? But I feel like just listening to our culture that, it, it, that it's important. It's something you can't take for granted. I kind of feel though like a, a medical professor trying to convince new doctors that there's blood flowing through people's veins. I mean, it ought to be obvious to all of us, but it's not. It's very contested in our culture that it's even just uh, a thing that actually exists. But if the Bible names something, that alone should be sufficient to establish its existence. And you know that this one specific word, and there, there are many, many, many more references in the Bible to sexual immorality, but this one specific word here occurs 24 times in the New Testament alone. It's the word that we get the English word pornography from. It's the word pornea. And it's this general term that encompasses all types of sexual immorality. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, listen to how the Bible talks about this, this issue in this passage. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And that word sanctification means to be made holy. It's the, it's the process of becoming less like our old self and more like God. And so this is the will of God, your sanctification. And, and then the Bible begins to define this very specifically, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and, and I want you to take note of that word we're going to talk more about that in just a second but the word transgress that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness therefore Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So the Bible teaches that how we conduct ourselves in the physical body, this is not a small issue or a side issue. This is a major issue in terms of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. God is calling us to a lifestyle that's completely different from the lifestyle that's being promoted within our, within our culture. And so when you think about what, what does it mean, what, what, what exactly is sexual immorality? Well, this specific term is a very broad term that encompasses all types of sexual sin. And one of the helpful ways to understand this is in terms of, of boundaries. Notice in the passage that we just read, the word trespass was used. 
Throughout the Bible, there are multiple words for sin. There are many words both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and they describe different types of sin and different aspects of sin. And one of the words is the word trespass. We still use that word today. If you cross a boundary onto someone else's property without permission, you are trespassing. It means to, to cross a boundary line and to be somewhere where you're not supposed to be. And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So one of, the, one of the ways in which we sin is that God sets a boundary for us and we cross that boundary and get into territory that we're not supposed to be in. And so in 1 Thessalonians, as it talks about sexual immorality, it, it uses this very term in verse 6, that no one transgress, transgress, the same idea as, as trespassing. And so I think it's helpful to think about this. Those of us that have children, we know that as you raise children, you go through all kinds of stages. I remember, that, I remember the stage when we got to leave the diaper bag at the house. I mean, the first time that we could leave the house without a diaper bag, it was just like victory. Everybody is able to go to the bathroom now. Uh, you just go through these stages. And there's a stage where you don't let them out of your sight. And then there's a stage where you let them play along in the room. And then eventually, you, they, they can go out in the yard unsupervised and they get to a certain age. And you, when you tell your kids, you can play in the yard, but don't, don't go outside the yard. That's, that's the idea of setting a boundary. And so once your parents tell, tell a child, you, know, you, you, you can play in the yard, but don't go outside the yard. You don't have to go back and ask. Can, can I play with my cars in, in, in the, the dirt pile in the front? No, it's, it's in the yard. You don't have to go back and ask. Can, can I swing in the back? No. It's, you don't have to ask. It's, it's, it's in the yard. That's the boundary. Just, just stay in the yard. But you can't go over the neighbor's yard and swing. That's breaking boundary. Sexual immorality, this specific term, is this broad term that describes this, this type of boundary. God has set a boundary for us. And inside of that boundary, we don't have to ask what, what's okay and what's not okay. And, but we can't transgress outside of it. So the boundary, what, what is it? Well, it's, it's marriage. It's one man committed to, to one woman. And so when you're, once you're married and you're in this committed relationship, and there's, there's just nothing you can do inside of it that's dirty, but there's also nothing you can do outside of it that's clean. The boundary is marriage. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 19, listen to what Jesus said as the Pharisees tried to test him one day. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, it says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So, so they weren't talking specifically about sexual immorality, but they were talking about marriage. And Jesus, in his comments, begins to show us exactly what he believed and taught about marriage in this relationship. And so verse 4, he answered, Have you not 
read. Don't gloss over that phrase. You see, Jesus, when he was confronted about what's right and what's wrong, he pointed them to the Scripture. Jesus said, have you not read? And the implication there in the tone is that they should have read and they should have known what the Scripture said. And so Jesus, we find, constantly points to the Scripture as the authority because after all, the Scripture is from him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So then when we read the Scripture, we're hearing the very voice of God. And so when we come to issues and we ask what is right and what is wrong, we go to the Scripture to find the answer. So Jesus says, have you not read? And then notice, this might seem strange to us if we don't understand the Bible, that in being asked about divorce and the acceptable causes for divorce, Jesus begins to talk about creation. It seems unrelated at first. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, begins immediately talking about creation. And, and wh why is it? Because you and I did not randomly evolve. We're not an accident of the universe. We were created by God. And because we were created, we were created with a design and with a purpose. And because he's the creator and we're the creation, he has the authority to set boundaries for us. And so Jesus says, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Well, we'll be talking about more than that in the next few weeks as we go through these chapters in Corinthians. But what a controversial statement today that God made them male and female. And said... Therefore, therefore, such an important word because it signals to us that what Jesus is about to tell us is based upon what he's just told us. You see, Jesus, before he can answer their question about divorce and sexual immorality, which he's about to get to, before he can address that, he has to lay the foundation for his reasoning and his statement. And the foundation that he lays is that God created us. And that God created us male and female. And the Bible says, and what did the one God desire? Godly offspring. So God created us in a certain way for a specific purpose. And so Jesus goes on to say, therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother. And listen to this. And hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. This means, hold fast means we're to be committed to one person. It means that we're not to be engaged in activity with all other people. But we're to be holding fast. We're to be totally committed to one person person because God designed us to be this way. God made us male and female for, for a purpose. 
male and female, for a purpose. And in the purpose, this design, he designed this institution of, of marriage, that, that a man and a woman come together, and inside that relationship that they produce children. And he says, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Well, we all know that the, the world is complicated, people are sinful, and marriage is messy. And so they begin to ask another question. So they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answered, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So just because God allows something doesn't mean that it's part of his purpose or his design. The Bible says here, Jesus answered them, the reason that Moses allowed divorce was because their heart was hard. It wasn't God's design. He says from, from the beginning, it was not so. So now we come to this issue of sexual immorality in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Uh, not, not my words, just Jesus. I'm just reading. That's what he said. Now, why would Jesus say, well, except for sexual immorality? So when there's sexual immorality involved, it, it's, it's, it's not adultery to divorce someone and to marry someone else. Why is that? Because ultimately, marriage is a sexual contract. Two people are committing, coveting, contracting to be committed and engaged only with each other. And so when someone engages with someone else, they've already violated and broken this covenant and this, this agreement. So the, the boundary, the boundary that God has given us for this activity is inside of marriage. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. When you think about our standard of morality, our standards of morality are to exceed those of our culture. And Paul was confronting the Corinthians because not only were their standards unbiblical, their standards didn't even meet up to the immoral standards of their own culture. He says, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So we see that even in the first century, there were competing ideas of what constituted sexual immorality. I know that a lot of times we think that we're just, we're just in uncharted territory today, but we, we're not. We're not. The reason we think that is because we're, we're, we're just, well, many times we're just ignorant of history. There, there's just not much that, that ever happens that hasn't already happened. And we think about this idea of there being all these competing philosophies about what's right and what's wrong. And, and maybe you think, oh, it's just never been like this before. It has been like this many times throughout the world history. And it was like that in the first century. There were competing ideas and philosophies about what was acceptable and what was not. 
And Paul said to the Corinthians that their standards of what was acceptable were not even tolerated even among pagans. Well, right now in America, we are currently living in a culture war over what constitutes sexual immorality. There's no question that there's a huge segment of our population that's trying to redefine what is moral and what is immoral. Some of the issues that are hotly contested today are, are premarital sex. And, and I say it's hotly contested. Really, it's just there's some preachers that are preaching against it. Everybody else seems to have accepted it. And we, we've long lost that battle in our culture. It is completely acceptable today. In fact, it's considered quite odd and strange that one would choose to wait until marriage. Yet that's what Jesus has told us. Living together, which was once taboo, is, is now just perfectly accepted. We even see people engaging in, in open relationships, meaning that they knowingly and willingly choose to engage with other people. This idea of homosexuality, is it, is it a sin or is it simply just another choice and preference? And then we have all kinds of various understandings of, of sexual identity and related to gender and how that's expressed. Owen Strachan, a, a modern-day theologian, this is what he said in a recent book that he wrote on, on humanity. He said, there's perhaps no more controversial statement today than this. There are men and there are women. It's almost humorous, isn't it? But it's true. No more controversial statement today than there are men and there are women. You see, we're called to be light in the darkness. But for the past hundred years, many churches in America have been slowly embracing the darkness. And entire denominations today are celebrating and, and promoting the darkness. One prominent Lutheran pastor recently wrote a New York Times bestseller promoting the use of what she calls ethical pornography. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You know, when you put two words together, they just don't go together. But promoting the use. And I'm not referencing somebody that's on the fringe of society writing a little blog in their basement or something. I'm talking about a prominent pastor with, on the New York Times bestseller list who is asked by the Lutheran denomination to be the keynote speaker for their big youth gathering of 40,000 students. And in her writings and in her teachings, promotes that Christians, young people especially that are not married yet, should be using the pornography. She goes on in her book not only to endorse sexual promiscuity, but she goes on to blame Christians who wait until marriage for causing problems in their marriage so we're living in a time where he, the church itself has embraced the darkness that our culture promotes and is celebrating it and pushing this agenda it's not just the lutherans the methodist church is on the verge of splitting over the ordination of homosexual pastors all these denominations and churches They'll be celebrated by the world. They'll be celebrated. But here's what the Bible says. In James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God.
in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 is a very popular verse. It's a verse that people would share on Facebook. It's a verse that people would put on their T-shirt. But most people don't recognize the context that I just read is about sexual purity. And it's verse 2, and it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when we think about this idea of what the Bible teaches us to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewal of your mind, what is the Bible talking about? It's talking about how we use our bodies. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To not be conformed to this world means that it's the world embraces all kinds of ideas of what is right and what is wrong in terms of the use of the body. There's that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be instead transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we come to the Word of God and we read it and we listen to what Jesus teaches and we are convinced that He speaks truth. So as the world teaches something completely different and the world mocks our message and the world mocks our lifestyle and the world call, accuses us of, of hatred and bigotry and all these different things, that we're not conformed to the world, but instead... We allow the Lord to transform our mind and help us to see things in a different way so that as we live through our life, the way that we conduct ourselves, we offer our bodies as a living act of worship to God, a living sacrifice, the Bible says. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Let us not conform to the sexual understanding of pagans, but let us be transformed by the renewal of our mind to the will of God that we might offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, you may think that Paul was primarily confronting a man about his sin, but that's not the primary message of this passage. Paul was primarily confronting the church about their attitude toward this man's sin and so the bible says and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you the bible teaches in this passage that when it comes to sin and especially sexual sin because it's such a major issue before god that he's calling us 
to use our bodies in such a way that we are a living sacrifice by how we conduct ourselves. That when we see people who, not people in the world, but people among us, people in our congregation who identify as believers, who profess to be followers of Christ, when we see them engaged openly in sexual immorality, that, that, that we're not to be arrogant about it in any way. We're not to be tolerant of it. A.W. Pink, preacher from a generation ago, this is what he said about this. It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors of faith. Paul said to the church at Corinth, and you're arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? There's a lot of ways that we can be arrogant about sin, and about sexual sin in particular. Arrogance can lead us to brag about sin instead of confessing it. Elmer Towns was a professor years ago at Liberty University. And there on the campus is Thomas Road Baptist Church. It's the church that started that, that school. And Elmer Towns tells the story about many years ago on a Wednesday night. They had a prayer meeting. And after the prayer service, people were hanging around and, and, and uh, just kind of mulling around and, and socializing. And, and he said it was, it was about 1030 at night. He said the ushers had gone home, pastors had gone home. And he said there was just a, a few people that were still there, that were still talking. And he said this, this student walked up to the pulpit. Elmer said that the lights were not on on the stage and the mic was not on either, but the spirit was present. This student came up to the pulpit and began to weep and confessed sin. Someone began to sing a song. And Elmer said that the singing broke out. And he said someone else ran to the piano and began to play. And he said it was just a few minutes that, that another student came up and just, just weeping began to confess their, their sin. And he said someone got on their phone and started texting pastors. and said revival has broke out at the church. And people came. And from Wednesday to Saturday, the church was open 24 hours. Elmer said people slept on the pew because they didn't want to leave. They could feel the presence of God in that place. And he said people would get up and confess their sin. And he said they'd break out and sing and you could hear people praying. He said this went on from Wednesday night till Saturday morning. And he said, Saturday morning, he said, a young man got up. And here are the words as Elmer, as he describes what happened. He says, early Saturday morning, one student rose to confess his sins. But he seemed to be bragging about what he had done when he had sinned. There was no shame, no brokenness. The Holy Spirit, who knows the heart, departed the meeting. Elmer said that within an hour, a packed church, a place where people had slept on the pews for three days, 
was empty as everyone knew that the revival was over. Arrogance. 1 Corinthians 5.2 And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Arrogance can lead us to brag about sexual sin instead of confessing it. Arrogance can also lead us to doubt God and his word. Ultimately, this was the basis of the first sin. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, describes it this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually, notice the word actually, putting doubt in their mind. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, notice that his message contradicts God's, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent said, God is lying to you. He is withholding something good from you. This is what he is arguing. So verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God set a boundary. And Satan said, did God really set a boundary and say you couldn't eat from this tree? And Eve says, well, Yes, God, God, God says, don't cross that, don't, don't eat from that one tree. And Satan says, God's a liar. He doesn't want you to experience that. He wants you to completely miss out. He doesn't want you to have something good. And Adam and Eve are faced with a crisis. Whether to listen to God or whether to listen to Satan. And they doubt God, and they listen to Satan. What you're about to hear over the next few weeks, as we walk verse by verse through these chapters, contradicts everything that our world teaches, and is promoting, and is pushing. And you're gonna have to make a decision over who you believe. The first sin came through doubting God and trusting Satan. It's my earnest hope that we'll not make the same mistake over and over again, even in our own generation. Arrogance can lead us to brag about sin. It can lead us to doubt God and his word. But it also keep us from mourning about sin.
Paul said, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You may have thought about mourning in terms of pain or sorrow or death, but many theologians believe that in this context of the Beatitudes, Jesus was talking about mourning over sin. We're in a sad place in America today, but this passage wasn't directed at America. It was directed at the Lord's church. When we think about who we are in Christ, God is calling us to live in such a way that how we conduct ourselves in our body is a living act of worship to Him. And when we see other people that are not doing this, we don't need to condone it. We don't need to celebrate it. We don't need to become self-righteous and condemn them either. We need to mourn. We need to pray that God would lead us to repentance. Instead of becoming tolerant, let us become transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us Help us to be faithful in how we live in every way, but in particular in how we use our body. And Lord, I pray for every person that's listening and watching in this prayer.